Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. In our Advent Sermon Series, The Language of Christmas, we are unpacking five ways to show love to one another. Physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and giving of gifts. Jesus lived a life of perfect love for God's people. The greatest responsibility and opportunity for a Christ follower is to practice loving God and neighbor like he loved us first. It's our prayer that the love of Christ will be the greatest gift in your home this Christmas. Now, tune in as we study what love is and how to show it. Christmas. I'm glad that you're here as we continue in what I said is a sermon series that's all about the five love languages of Christmas. And every week people have been reminding me, five love languages, how is that about Christmas? It's a book somebody gave me that I was supposed to read before I got married um, to tell me how I best give and receive love and how my partner or people around me best give and receive love. Absolutely. But what we've been saying week after week after week, and we've been surprised by week after week after week, is that this idea of love languages may have far more to do with Christmas than any of the other cultural representations that we find ourselves inundated with season after season after season, and that this look at what love is and what love isn't might be the best reminder of Christmas, way better than any of our reindeer stories. I think about as we approach this week, I think about the birth of my own children basically two times a year. And many of you have, like I do, in your home, this nativity set that you put out at the beginning of the season. And some of you are like us. You have the really nice one, the one that costs a little bit more money, the one that's like highly breakable. And you put that in a place, especially if you have young children where they can't reach it because you don't want them messing up grandma's nativity that's been passed down to generation to generation. little side business for parents in the room. I encourage you to get a plastic one that you don't mind your children playing with. We still have ours and set that one up too year after year after year. But the idea of nativity, this whole picture of the birth narrative of Christ really just means birth story. It's really just, you have a nativity, I have a nativity, we have the story surrounding our birth and the narrative of how we got into this world, and it's Christ's nativity that we celebrate at Christmas, but you have one of those stories too at Christmas time. I think about the birth of my children. Typically, I remember the events surrounding those days on the day that they were born when we celebrate their birthday every year, but then also at Christmas when we dial into the birth of Christ. My oldest, I remember, was born in Florida, 16 years old. Now, that's how you folks can pray for us. Um, so here we are getting ready to pray. We already had it all planned out. She was a scheduled cesarean section, supposed to come on November 15th. Susan's parents were going to make the nine-hour drive from South Carolina earlier in the week so that they could be there in time to help us and to celebrate and to welcome the birth of not only our first child, but their first grandchild who decided to come three days early. So in the middle of the night, they had to leave to come and drive down to be with us. 
And so the people that we had planned and the story that we had written and everything that we had thought would happen, what we expected to be the case, was in fact not the case. And so when I was sitting there holding her in a rocking chair for the very first time going, how did someone leave me alone with this child? While Susan, because it's an actual surgery, is recovering from the cesarean section, I look at the window and there peering against the glass are two ladies from our church, Pat and Blair. They had been instrumental in the life of our student ministry, helping us with high school kids. And Pat, not only that, ministering to students, had also been Susan's mentor for our years that we lived in Florida. And they were the first to come and see me as a dad holding that tiny, precious baby. Now, some of you will remember this. Back in those days, we did not have Facebook. We did not have Instagram. And we also did not have smartphones. All phones were dumb. Like, maybe they had already invented smartphones, but I couldn't afford one and did not know what they were at the time. And not only were they dumb phones, like you couldn't get on the internet and you couldn't do your social media, but they didn't actually have a keyboard. They weren't QWERTY ready, like you're typing on your computer. They literally only had the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, star, zero, pound. And you had to use those things in order to accomplish anything that you were going to accomplish on your cell phone. And so problem number one, the fact that Lily Kate came late in the evening on a Sunday, three days before she was supposed to, what are we going to do to get the word out? I can certainly call the grandparents, but we've got all these friends and all these family that we want to be able to alert. Had I wanted to text each and every one of them individually, I would have had to do what was known as, some of you students are like, that doesn't exist. No, it really did. It was multi-tap texting. I literally would have had to look at my phone and go 555 because that's where you got a space. 222, hold for a second. Another two, 833-0444-7777-0443377733, all to say the sentence, Lily Kate is here. And that's not the only detail that people want to know in that moment. And they would have flooded me with all kinds of questions. And I would have had to go 777-4433093344-4-4-4-4-3-3-7-7-7-7-3-3-8-8-8-3-3-6-6-0-7-6-6-6-8-8. I don't like saying 666 all in a row like that. 8-8-6-6-3-7-7-7-0-2-6-6-3-0-8-9-3-3-5-5-8-8-8-3-3-0-6-6-6-8-8-6-6-2-2-2-2-3-3-7-7-7. Just to say she weighed seven pounds and 12 ounces. And y'all, I would not have had the mental energy or the finger dexterity to be able to tell anybody that Susan was fine and that the baby was healthy. Like, they would have just been left. That would have been so much work. So Pat and Blair took care of it for us. They spread the word to our family and our friends and our church body that this baby was here. And we've not wanted to throw a whole lot of shade on Christmas except in the moments when I have this year. This idea of love languages and how we intersect the story of Christ probably has far more to do with all the elves and all the cultural things that we spend our time and our effort on. And so often people miss the forest for the trees and they miss the birth of Christ amidst all of the other things that are happening in the world. And sometimes it's because we seven 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 three three four we put it in code. And we mix it up with all of the other things that we're focusing on at Christmas so that we make it really difficult for people to see that it's actually about Jesus. We think it's okay to marry modern culture with an ancient nativity. And here's the deal. We needed, oh my goodness, we needed Christ to come. We needed him to get here. And we need to be able to tell other people that he's here and why it matters so, so much that he came as a humble servant. You and I think 
that in our view of the world and in our positions as people that we could have come up with a better way. Why didn't you just send him as a king? Why didn't you just send him as a monumental savior so that the entire world all in an instant noticed who he was, believed who he was, and everything could have changed? Why did you start out in such a humble state of service? We needed it to be that way. Whether we understand it or recognize it, or not, one of the best pieces of parenting wisdom, and you can really apply this to any situation that you, like you can apply it to your New Year's goals. Like right at the beginning of January when you're trying to set out some agenda items for the new year, you can, you can apply it to that. You can apply it to nearly everything that you do. Real life wisdom for any situation, start out as you intend to go. If you're heading north to get to Milwaukee over Christmas, it doesn't do you much good to head south towards Alabama. You start out as you intend to go. This would have been wonderful wisdom for us to actually heed in the moment in our lives when we realized if you don't want a 70-pound golden doodle to sleep in your bed, then you probably shouldn't let a 15-pound puppy cuddle with you on your pillow. You start out as you intend to go. So think about the end in mind. Think about that Christmas that you have. And I dare say, because it happens every single year, and we talk about it with our friends and our community and conversation, some of us will get to December the 26th, and we'll look back at everything that we've done the 25 prior days and think to ourselves, it just went so fast. It wasn't that meaningful we didn't really focus on Jesus. And it's because we didn't set our feet in that direction from the beginning. It's because when Hobby Lobby put out their Christmas decorations in August, we were already set in a cultural direction. It's because when Halloween rounded itself out and we looked toward the holidays, we were already set on a cultural direction. It's because when Thanksgiving was over, we weren't moving in the direction of Jesus, but we were already on another journey. It's important that we start out as we intend to go. And when we're looking at the Christmas narrative, it did that for us. Because the Christian life, the one that we aim to live once we know and believe and recognize that Jesus Christ, in fact, is the Savior and Messiah and Lord, the Christian life is to be marked by service. Paul wrote this down for us in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, like, okay, basically that's everything. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be, some of your Bible translations say grasped or held on to, or in this case, used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. If you're somebody that likes to underline and circle words in your Bible, we're going to come back to that one, servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death. On a cross. And if we're going to make much of anything about Christmas, then that means we're also going to have to look ahead and set our feet in the direction of Easter because we know that the reason why this suffering servant, Christ's child, came in such a lowly manner is because he was going to exit exactly the same way. The baby that was laid in a manger, humble beginnings, was going to be the Savior that hung on a cross. He started as a child of working class people and he continued to live out in humility and teach humility in everything that he did. If we fast forwarded in his life, this tiny baby would grow up to be a rabbi, a teacher, and he would call disciples to follow him. And in Matthew chapter 20, if you want to go there first before we eventually land in Luke chapter 2 with the Christmas narrative, you get this story about a few of the disciples and their mother. 
It says that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus. This is James and John, two of the more famous. They get more lines in Scripture. They get more books and stories about them in Scripture uh, than some of the other disciples. It says the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Because what she's asking for is a picture of what she sees played out in the world. She knows that the closer you are to the person in charge, the more power and the more authority and the more recognition that you have. They imagine that God on high was seated on a heavenly throne and that whoever sat right next to him was going to have the most power and authority. She's acknowledging that Jesus is that king, that Jesus is that Lord, and that one day he would be returned to a glorious throne and that whoever was the closest in proximity to him would have the most authority and the most power. They understood that the Roman government, whoever was closest to the emperor, had the most authority and the most power and also the most privilege. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Echoing the fact that his life was going to be taken from him. And they boldly answered, we can. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup because he knew the sacrificial lives that they would live. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. He says, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten, the other ten disciples, heard about this, they found out what James and John and their mama were doing. They were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them all together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Anybody that's in a position of power or close to the person in a position of power, lord it over all of the other people who are not that close and not in those positions of power. And their high officials exercise authority over them. And it was an abusive kind of authority. And then he says, not so with you. Instead, it's the opposite. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. You want to underline and circle that word because it's an important one and we'll come back to it. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You want to understand, underline and circle that word because it's an important one and we'll come back to it. And he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He started out as he intended to Go And this is a side note for another sermon on another day. If you look at Zebedee's, mom, or Zebedee's wife and the mother of James and John in this moment, sometimes we just want the wrong things. Not only that, we don't just want the wrong things for ourselves. We, we want the wrong things for our kids. Like, we, we want the wrong things for our children. And when you're making that list and you're checking it twice and you're trying to figure out how magical we can make this season and how wonderful we can make this Christmas, even as well-meaning, Christ-following, Jesus is the reason for the season kind of people and kind of parents, we can sometimes find ourselves so easily caught up in the moment, like Zebedee's wife and James and John's mom, wanting the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time. And his parents who look around on December 26th and realize that our, our, our feet were set in the wrong direction, we can, we can wake up that morning and realize that for our kids that we wanted the wrong things and that we emphasized the wrong story and that we brought the wrong message. We are so 
easily fooled in our lives. This isn't just about Christmas. This is an everyday challenge for us. We are so easily fooled by notions of status. Jesus says, not so with you. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And in Greek, that's the word diakonos. And some of you grew up in church traditions like I did, where you had deacons in the life of your church. And many of them had been elevated to positions of power and authority where the deacon body in the life of the church, those were the people who made the decisions. But that's not the word that's in Scripture. Those weren't the decision-making bodies in the Bible. They were the, the servants, the people who served the people who carried their towel, the people who went and washed others' feet, the people who served the widows and the orphans, the people who served were the deacons in the early church. And that's the picture that we get from the very start, the very beginning of all of Scripture, not just this Christmas story. Everything about this Bible highlights servants. But we don't want to be confused by the word because it's one of those spots where the English doesn't really do us many favors. Because if you remember in Luke chapter 1, when the angel visited Mary and he comes down and he says, hey, greetings, you who are highly favored. Don't be afraid. I've got really good news. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your life. You're actually going to become pregnant. She's like, whoa, I'm not married. How's this going to happen? And he's like, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you're going to become pregnant with a baby and not just any baby because that baby is going to be the savior of the people. And she responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. But what she didn't say was, I am the Lord's deacon. No, she said, I am the Lord's doulos, which doesn't just mean servant. It goes back to what Matthew said, what Jesus said in Matthew 20. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. We're not just talking about somebody who is a servant. We're talking about someone who is all out, in debt, committed. She says, I'm the Lord's slave. You do whatever it is you want to do, and I will follow. May everything be fulfilled. That doulos, that slave, that bondman, let's not get caught up with any of the representations that we've seen of slavery in the United States in our really, really tainted history or slavery that's still all across the world in really horrific situations. It's literally somebody who gives up themselves for another person's will in Christian service. It's those who live their whole lives trying to extend and advance the kingdom of God, his cause among people. It's literally that person who is devoted to somebody else at the disregard of even their own interests. I'm the Lord's slave. It's his purpose, his kingdom, his story that matters, not my own. Mary wasn't the kind of servant that was mentioned in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. She was the slave that was mentioned in Matthew chapter 20, verse 27. Incidentally, that's also the word that Paul used in Philippians chapter 2. When Christ became a servant, he became a slave. It was our interests, our salvation, our freedom that he was concerned with, giving up his own life for somebody else's, those who would naturally and intentionally go last, give up, serve others no matter what. I have a question. How do you see yourself in Jesus? Is it as the servant? Or is it as somebody who's posturing for some status? How do you see yourself in Jesus? How do you define your role as a, as a follower of 
Christ, Mary went on to sing. We call it the Magnificat. It's a famous song of worship. She says in Luke chapter 1, with verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his doulos, his slave, his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. You can sum all that up by saying, I'm nobody. I'm just lucky. How do you see yourself as a follower of Christ? Are you clamoring to be somebody or do you recognize I'm just nobody and I am lucky. I am blessed to be here forgiven and chosen and used by him to further his agenda and his message in other people's interests, not my own. You know, the very first people to see and to tell were really humble servants. In Luke chapter 2, we read about the birth of Christ, and it actually starts with Mary and Joseph. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And I love that he issued that decree, but it was the Lord who orchestrated the need for it because he had a plan all along to birth his baby in a special town. It says this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register, bring it down to this specific family. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. We're talking about Old Testament King David. That's Joseph's heritage. He's not a king. He's not part of a royal line anymore, but his ancestry was literally from David, chosen to be king over a unified Israel, literally remembered for being someone who sought after the very heartbeat of God. Like, he's Israel's most famous to this date king, and that's the family heritage and line that Joseph came from. He went there in verse 5 to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married. They're engaged at this point to be married to him and was expecting a child while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's a scandal to this story, and it's not the one you think. Because here's a really young, unwed mother, and what the world would view as the scandalous father they would have been talked about, they would have been shunned, they would have been hot gossip in the community. But to me, that's not the only scandal and it's not the worst one. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and the Bible doesn't tell us, but I think it's a pretty sturdy limb, and I think we can all agree that Joseph was not the only member of his family who was still alive that day. And if he was not the only member of his family that was still alive that day, that meant that there would have been other brothers and other cousins and other cousins' wives and other brothers' wives, and maybe even his dad is still living, or maybe he still has an uncle that's alive, and every single one of those members would have had to make the exact same journey from where they were coming in Nazareth or where they were coming in another part of the Judean hill country, or maybe they were even making their way from the holy city of Jerusalem itself in order to go back to their ancestral town of David to gather with all their family, to stand in line, to pay their taxes and to be counted according to the Roman decree. 
And the Bible says that there was no room for them. And I, I, I remember that story growing up, and I always thought that it was an, an inn, like Bethlehem was some bustling town of like, it wasn't like Broadway and Nashville where tourists come from miles around to go crazy in the city. That was not Bethlehem. We're not talking about inns that were crowded and hotels that were full. This is not Myrtle Beach with a no vacancy sign outside the door. It's literally just a small town where a bunch of people live and their families had to come back home to be counted. I'm going to be on this limb thinking that Joseph wasn't the only one from his own family, his cousins, his uncles, his brothers, his sister, his family who had to go to that town and be counted. And the idea of a a guest room, the idea of no room at the inn, it's literally a, a Greek word that's only used two times for us in Scripture. Upstairs room, guest room here, and the upstairs room where Jesus would one day go with his disciples in order to take his final Passover meal on the evening that he was arrested and tried and ultimately convicted and crucified. It's literally just an upstairs bedroom. And I know y'all, and I know your mama's raised you right. That if there was some teenage girl in your family pregnant at Christmas and they're all gathering together because we're going to celebrate this holiday together, she's not going to be the one sleeping on the floor. You're going to be the one sleeping on the floor. You're going to be the one blowing up the air mattress. You're going to be the one getting cold and not warm. You're going to make sure that she's the one that's taken care of because in just a few days, any day now, this girl's going to pop. You're going to give her a bed. You're going to give her a room. You're for crying out going to give her at least a chair to sit in and rest her weary, tired feet from the travel that they just endured and yet where were his brothers where was the uncles and where was great aunt lois the family midwife who had helped birth all the other babies in their family why wasn't she there at my nativity holding mary's hand telling her it's gonna be okay people that you expect to be there aren't the ones that came and it wasn't because Jesus was three days early and it was a nine-hour drive it's because they didn't want them there and they didn't want to support them in this moment they missed the birth of not only their nephew not only their cousin not only their not their own family that they missed the birth of their savior Some people didn't. It says there were shepherds living out in verse 8 in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be... Angels always say, do not be afraid. Like, we picture angels as really, really pretty. On our nativity, they're nice. Like, the angels are some of the prettiest characters that we have in our nativity. I think based on the words in Scripture where angels are always like, do not be afraid, they looked a whole lot more like Halloween than they do Christmas. Like, these guys were scary and terrifying. And so here they always came, hey, let me start out as I intend to go. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. Like, I've got good news for you. That will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel. I'm real glad they just sent one guy at first to kind of break the ice and make sure that they were okay before they just showed up with an entire army of angels. Can you imagine how overwhelming that would have been? And now all of a sudden we've softened the blow. I bring you good news. Now he's surrounded by an entire heavenly host. And they praise God and they say, glory to God in the highest 
Christ's heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the, the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. This is our nativity. Here come the shepherds. When they had seen him, the Bible says they, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondered them in her heart, and the shepherds returned. Hey, I go back to the field. There's still work to be done. And yet they were glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We know that the hill country surrounding Bethlehem what was known to be a place with lots of sheep farms and sheep herds and that some of them had a set-apart purpose in the life of Israel. They were the exact sheep that would have been taken down into Jerusalem and used by the priest in the temple of God in the holiest of holy places to sacrifice and make atonement for the people's sins. These were not just any sheep. They were very, very special sheep. These were the lambs that were being prepared for worship. And yet the profession of their keepers would have prevented them from coming close. Those sheep had to be unblemished, but the shepherds themselves were considered ritualistically and ceremonially unclean people. Do you not find it as strange as I do that the servants are the ones who got to see it? That the very people whose profession made them tend the sacrifice, that they, because of that profession, were not allowed to attend that somehow they were the very first ones to lay their eyes on the once and for all sacrificial lamb that was given to the world so that our sins might be paid for and atoned for and that we might get to know Jesus. It was not the people that you expect. I can see them peering up against the glass looking at the father and the mother who just welcomed their first child. Their names were not Pat and Blair. Scripture doesn't tell us. They weren't the ones that you expect, but they were the first ones to see. On Sunday mornings here at the Nashville campus, I look out and I see a familiar face because Pat, when our first baby was born, had a granddaughter who was just a toddler at the time. Now she's in her second year at Belmont. She usually sits in this section right over here that is uniquely void of college students at this point. They've already taken their finals. They've gone home. They are celebrating Christmas. Godspeed. We can't wait for them to be back in January. She usually sits in this section or up in the balcony when she's running late. And I'll tell you, her name is Katie, and she's never been to Rolling Hills on a Sunday morning without four or five of her friends that she invited to get here. And during one service each week, you can find her upstairs singing songs with the elementary school kids. You just never know who God's going to invite to come and see and to come and serve. FYI, spoiler alert, that's why you're here. You've been invited to come and see. Like, it doesn't matter how, how far off, if it was a nine-hour drive to get here, like, it doesn't matter how far you are or it doesn't matter how late you feel. It doesn't matter how distant things seem 
or how scared you feel or how unsure you might be, if you were occupying a seat this morning, it's not because you've been invited to church. It's because you've been invited to the manger. You've been invited to see the birth of your Savior. And if you've been invited to see the birth of your Savior, that means that you've been invited to understand the reason that he came and that his death was pending and that the death was God's greatest gift. Hold on, Nick Allen. That's what we're going to talk about at Christmas Eve. That's why he was given to you. And if you've been invited to see, you have been invited to share. It means that you've been invited to serve. Listen up, Zebedee's wife and sons. You've been invited to serve. It's not the status you have. It's not the stance you take. And my mercy, we Christians, like publicly, you know what we're known for? We're known to be a people. Look at the headlines. Look at the social media. Look at the stories that are out there. Barna Research has revealed once again this time of year that people who are unchurched and do not believe in Jesus, their suspicion about us is that we are irrelevant and that we don't understand love and that we're unkind. We're known for the stances that we take to boycott this and to avoid that and to cancel this and to condemn that. We're known for all of that and the status that we want when this whole story is not about inviting famous people or rich people or influential people or good people or even good-looking people. It's literally all about finding broken people, hurting people, real people, stuck people, confused people, those who feel forgotten. We often picture those shepherds as the older men, Bedouins. They've got super tan, leathery skin and wrinkles everywhere and long beards and furrowed brows. A lot of modern scholarship and really relevant history would tell us that most often those shepherds were kid. And we have a biblical example of that because David himself, the one who was chosen to be Israel's next and most famous king after Saul when Samuel had to go to the town of Bethlehem, where we are in this story, to find and anoint the next king, goes to the house of Jesse because God instructed him to go to the house of Jesse. And he literally lines up all of Jesse's sons and one by one, every one of them was rejected. Well, this one's strong. This one's smart. This one's good looking. This one will surely make a good king. And he gets to the end and God had rejected every single one of them. And he looks at Jesse and says, don't you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, we got David, he's the youngest, but he's out there with the sheep. So we have an accurate picture of, of kids being the ones who were out there taking care of the flock. So it would not be beyond me in this moment. I'm not going to die on this hill. But the people who literally saw the angel in heaven and heard the sound of the songs and were invited to come might have been children. Some modern scholarship, I would have to investigate, said that it could have even been little girls. I just blew up y'all's nativity set. <laughs> what if it was? You're thinking, well, how would a young girl have fought off a lion or fought off a fellow who was trying to steal the sheep? I'm looking at some of y'all. You look pretty tough. Kathy, maybe you could have. <laughs> who knows? Why does it make you think and feel to realize that the very first people to be invited were literally the least and the last of the society in which they lived. I'm going to hang my hat on that story, and, and I'm going to live in the middle of that nativity. 
because it's never about the status. It's always about the service. There are people out there, and maybe even people in here, who who do not believe in Jesus yet because somehow or another they've caught on to the message that they have to be good enough first. And there are people out there who can't believe in Jesus yet because they've only ever encountered followers of Jesus who are selfish and not servants. Here's the deal with the love languages this year. It's the way that we've been approached by Almighty God, and it's the way that we've been instructed to approach everyone around us. Humble service softens people's hearts, and it shares. I was going to say better, but I realized that wasn't good enough, so I had to cross that out. It shares the best story. When we serve, this is the story that we share. I'm going to end on a real low note with Paul's words to the church in Galatia. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were were called to be free. That means that if you believe in Jesus, if you understand this Christmas story, if you recognize the way that it leads to the Easter story, and you can declare that he alone is Savior and Lord, he came to reckon and, and save people from sins and to connect us back to God and to create an eternal home for us. If you can declare yourself by your faith a believer in Jesus Christ and call yourself a Christian, that means that you were called to be free, but warning You're not supposed to use your freedom, according to Paul, to indulge the flesh, rather to what? Serve one another humbly in love. And then he says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, because if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. The question for us today as a part of this series is, who are you going to love? And in what ways are you going to humbly serve? Because it may be the reason while they reluctantly believe that there's a God who created them and loves them and desires for them to see just how much. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much that we get to gather and that that it's Christmas and that it's fun and that we have so much joy wrapped up in the story of this week. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to move in each one of us and remind each one of us that we have, in whatever lowly state we're in, been called to see and to serve. And, Father, my prayer is that the people that we serve would see you because of it. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. And lastly, from the church family to your family, Merry Christmas.